This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and today I'm very pleased to have with me one of the two authors of a fabulous book that's just come out with Verso titled After Work, A History of the Home and the Fight for Free Time. This is a really interesting book that lays out how unpaid work in our homes has come to take up an ever-increasing portion of our lives, of our time, of all sorts of things, and explain how this has happened, why this has happened, and maybe some ways forward. The book is written by Dr. Helen Hester and Dr. Nick Cernak, and I'm very pleased to have Dr. Nick Cernak with me here today to tell us all about it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into the book the two of you have written, would you mind please introducing yourself and perhaps your co-author a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book together? Sure. So I'm Dr. Nick Cernick, a senior lecturer in digital economy at King's College London. Uh, and my co-author slash wife is Dr. Helen Hester, actually Professor Helen Hester, and she works at the University of West London. Um, so the reason we decided to write this book originally um, had to do with sort of discussions we've been having about uh, what's known as sort of post-work politics. So this idea of trying to reduce work time as much as possible uh, to try and maximize the amount of free time that people have so they can freely live their lives as they choose. Um, and so I wrote a book in 2015 talking about this sort of stuff. But one of the things that Helen and I discussed at that point and that um, you know sort of felt an inkling was missing was that it didn't it never really talked about sort of reproductive labor in the home. Um, so, Helen started writing about it. Uh, she gave a talk in, I think, 2015 or 2016. And I read through the talk and I was like, this is terrific. You know, actually, this could form the basis of a book. Uh, and so we ended up deciding to co author this book together. Uh, and about, well, how many years? Seven years later, uh, it's finally out. Well, that's very exciting to have gotten to this point. Can you tell us a bit more about the normative project of this book? Yeah, so it's a, it goes in line with all this post-work politics thinking. So, uh, like I said, this idea of reducing work in order to maximize free time, 
Um, and particularly in this book, we put an emphasis on that free time aspect. So it's it's in the title. Um, and the reason why we do that is because, you know, too often if you sort of rail against work, um, people will just think, oh, well, the opposite of work is like sitting on a couch watching TV. Um, and that's not what we're arguing for necessarily at all. Um, we're not against that, but really what we want from this sort of political project is to give people free time um, that they don't have when they're working you know, for a boss or for a company, um, to give people more free time to choose how they want to spend their time of their lives. Um, and that can be you know, sitting on a couch. Uh, it could be sleeping in uh, more mornings. But it can also be things like, well, choosing to be part of a collective project that you know you just don't have time for at the moment. Um, so the normative project of the book is really maximizing free time as the sort of foundation of freedom. And so the book is really organized around, well, how do we do this when we look at reproductive work, uh, work that's done in the home? Thank you for taking us through that. It's a very useful foundation um, for the book that investigates uh, what we might do in future, how we might fix this, but also helps us understand kind of how we've gotten to where we are. And I'd love to start with one of those pieces, because, of course, I think a myth we might have is that sort of more technology in the home will reduce work in the home. And yet the book makes a very compelling case that, yes, we do have more tech in the home. That hasn't really done much for the reducing work piece, though. Why hasn't technology not reduced work? Yeah, so this is one of the curious things that first emerged uh, in the 1970s when researchers started looking at it. So there was um, uh, Joan Vanek, I believe, and then most notably Ruth Schwartz-Cohen, researchers in the 19, uh, early 1970s, uh, looking at how much work was being done in the home by housewives. And in particular, they were comparing it to periods before the introduction of domestic technologies like uh, you know, vacuums, washers and dryers, dishwashers, fridges, freezers. Before all of these technologies came into the home, how much work were housewives doing then versus afterwards? And the expectation would be that, okay, if you have a washer and dryer and you no longer have to clean clothes by hand, the expectation would be that you've saved a ton of time. But what these researchers found wasn't that, was actually the opposite, was that these housewives in particular were doing more work in the home in the 1970s than housewives have been doing back in the in the early 1900s. So this became known um, eventually as Cohen's paradox. Why do labor-saving technologies in the home not seem to save labor? Uh, and so in our book, we try and continue that line of thinking. So, you know, they were writing in the 1970s. We've tried to show how it's continued, you know, in the, in the 50 years since. Um, the only real new domestic technology from the 1970s onwards has been the microwave, uh, which was sort of popularized in the 1980s. And then you sort of have all these little tiny kitchen gadgets, which, you know, they tend to be more faddish than everything. So they might be a, a popular kitchen gadget for like a year, and then it sort of disappears into obscurity. Um, and research suggests that, uh, again, this technology still isn't reducing any sort of uh, domestic labor, um, certainly not to any sort of significant degree. Uh, and so, yeah, the question is, well, why is this the case? And in many ways, the I would say a good half of the book is devoted to that sort of question. So I won't try and cover all of it right now. Um, 
but one of the key reasons why has to do with um, standards, which we'll I think we'll talk about a bit later on, so I won't get into it now, but the expectation of how clean the home is supposed to be, for instance. Another reason why has to do with the fact that um, these new domestic technologies in the early 20th century, they turned collective efforts at work into individualized efforts at work. And so work that had sort of been once shared amongst the community and was quite you know physically burdensome and took a long time, but it was shared amongst a group of people. Suddenly with something like the washer and dryer, it can be done by a single person. Uh, and so you see that sort of that focused nature of the of the reproductive labor. The other uh, key reason why is because, yes, these devices in the home would save some labor on some tasks, but sometimes they would also introduce new work that had to be done. Um, the uh, so things like, for instance, um, a fridge and a freezer, which you know saved time that you could you could cook a big meal and then throw it in the fridge and have leftovers for you know the rest of the week for a family. Um, so that saves time, but also in order to be able to purchase these goods, you had to have a car because uh, you know supermarkets were uh, becoming larger and they were becoming uh, more distant from uh, people's homes. So you'd have to then go drive to the store, spend your time finding all this stuff, which wasn't always the case beforehand, uh, bagging it all up, packing it into your car, taking it back home. Um, you know, it was still it would end up adding, um, in some cases, uh, you know, hours of time per week uh, to the sort of work that you had to do in the home. So yeah, a fridge freezer saves labor on some aspects, but that same device also causes new work in in other ways. And I think one of the more interesting ones recently has to do with the smart home. So if you look at the smart home, one of its promises is that it just makes your life sort of more convenient. Um, I think probably the best example of this is something like the, uh, walking into a room and uh, having the light just automatically turn on. So, you know, it's not saving a lot of time, but it's saving that sort of act of having to think about and, and turn on the light yourself. The problem is that the smart home even if it might be saving a little bit of labor, is also increasing a, a huge amount of labor uh, in terms of having to you know, monitor updates for all of these devices, having to make sure security is working, having to make sure that all these devices talk to each other in the proper ways, fixing sort of IT problems that end up coming up. Um, you know, the, the, the printer, I think, is a really good example. If you've got a printer at home, like, these things break down all the time. And the same thing goes with smart home devices. So the promise is that they're going to save some labor, but in fact, they're creating all these new tasks. So for all these sorts of reasons, that's why you know domestic technology um, hasn't really reduced work in the home. Hmm. There's a lot of things that, as you said, we're going to, I think, get further into. And the first one I'd love to discuss is this idea of we have a lot of new technologies, but as you said, they're faddish or they add a lot of labor. In fact, the example you gave of kind of the most recent useful one is the microwave, which is, you know, not necessarily what we'd consider as the cutting edge of technology. Mm -hmm. So why don't, you know, we have a bunch of new technology. Why don't we have the technologies we deserve, the technologies that would cut down on these things and how might we get them? Yeah. So another sort of curious thing we we came across in the book was, again, the complete lack of technological development from the 1970s onwards, with the exception of the microwave. But 
it was actually invented back in the 1950s and only became popularized in the 1980s. Um, you see a real absence of any sort of technological development uh, from the 1970s onwards. And this is particularly curious because it's also the period when the idea of having a housewife stay at home and do all the work in the house is, is disappearing. Women are moving into the waged workforce and suddenly you don't have somebody devoted to uh, taking care of the home. And, you know, the story that's told about capitalism, for instance, is that, well, if there's a demand for something, then some, you know, aspiring entrepreneur will come along and innovate and create something uh, to fill that demand. And you would expect that as women are moving into the waged workforce, that there would be a surge of new demand for domestic devices to help out with the home. Uh, if there's less people, less time uh, available to take care of the home, well, maybe we need new technologies. But that's not what we find. We don't really find any new technologies coming about. I think a core reason why has to do with the fact that um, the, the answer for so many households, particularly middle class, upper middle class, and the wealthy, is that instead of buying a sort of an expensive technology to solve a problem, they've instead turned to cheap often immigrant labor, uh, in order to provide the same sort of labor. Uh, so for instance, you can buy uh, an expensive Roomba. I think you know the top of the line one still costs like 900 pounds or something. Um, you can buy a very expensive robot vacuum, or you can simply hire uh, a cleaner to come in and do a much better job uh, and clean many more things for much less money. And so we call this in, in the book, we call it the maids over machines principle. The fact that uh, the solution uh, to the problem of not having somebody devoted to the household anymore, the solution has been to hire cheap labor rather than uh, purchase expensive technology. Um, so yeah, this has left, I think, a, a real sort of uh, gap in domestic technologies where, yeah, we see fancy new technologies being developed all the time nowadays, but Again, nothing that really changes domestic labor in any significant way. Is there anything we could do to change that? I, I think there is. I think one way um, is to look at how letting the people who are doing the work, the workers themselves, giving them the tools and the capacities and the resources to be able to create their own technologies. Uh, there's a long history, and we, we try and go through it in the book. There's a long history of actually real sort of you know, ground up innovation there. Um, particularly interesting case has to do with things like uh, religious communities uh, where women are given access to a lot of like, you know, capacity to, to develop new technologies for the home. And all sorts of inventions are just created. You know, there's an absolute flourishing of, uh, you know, sometimes tiny little inventions, but other things that, you know, make quite a big difference. Um, and yeah, I think that's one of the key ways is just simply expanding the possibilities for workers themselves to be able to think of new ways to use their um, their local resources and respond to the sort of uh, the needs that they have as workers. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd love to pick up on something else you mentioned earlier, this idea of standards, um, not just for cleanliness in the home, but also for comfort and for parenting and for busyness. Um, all of these things seem very linked to this idea that the standards have changed over time and that this has an impact on work in the home. So can we pick up on that thread? Yeah. So this was um, 
Ruth Swartz Cohen's um, one of her ideas for why uh, why labor saving devices hadn't actually saved labor, um, and she pointed in particular to the rise of scientific discourses around hygiene at the turn of the century. So a new emphasis on well, you need to keep the house clean in order to prevent germs from spreading and things like that. Um, but this also intermingles the sort of scientific discourse around hygiene. It intermingles with um, class biases around cleanliness, as well as racial biases around cleanliness, and then even imperialist discourses around uh, the significance of cleanliness. You know, there's a whole history of um, uh, advertisers presenting soap, for instance, as like the the indicator of civilization. Um, and of course, we still, you know, you still hear people call uh, uh, the working classes. They call them the great unwashed masses. Uh, and so these ideas of cleanliness um, and the sort of normative aspect of them, the expectation that, well, if you want to uh, become part of the elite, if you want to become part of civilization, if you want to become part of respected society, uh, that in fact, you have to be maintaining these, these expectations of cleanliness. So all of that sort of gets um, uh, played into at the turn of the 20th century. And what happens is like, well, yeah, we have technologies which allow us to clean the household quicker, but the expectations are also going up at the same time. So we don't actually end up saving labor time. Um, you know, if you think about a sort of a classic uh, capitalist sort of production process, yeah, we've got productivity increasing, but also output is increasing as well. So you're not saving any time here. Um, and yeah, the reasons why they get ratcheted up. I mean, we try in the in the in the book to sort of show that it's it's quite complex. There's a mixture of a variety of different things, and it's not just like you know, it's not just capitalism wants to keep you busy or some sort of naive idea like that. It's that well, there's interest on the parts of some capitalists, you know, uh, soap manufacturers, for instance, uh, that want to present cleanliness as the height of you know the height of status. Uh, and then, of course, you've also got these racially inclined discourses, these uh, class bias discourses as well. Um, and then more interestingly, you have um, uh, recently the rise of intensive parenting. So the idea that parents need to spend a lot of time actively engaging with their children, developing their children, and effectively treating them as little bundles of human capital uh, rather than people. Um and you know, there's no there's no one reason behind this, but a core reason is because parents are understandably worried about getting their children uh, the best life possible. And in order to get the best life possible, it's assumed that they need to get a really good job. And probably the best way to get a really good job is to get a really good education. And in order to get a really good education, you have to be you know training from the baby stage onwards. Um, to be, you know, to to compete against everybody else, and so yeah, you see the rise of these expectations about what parents are supposed to do for their children, and it's you know it's 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 not caused by any one person or even institution deciding to make that a, a new social norm, but it's a sort of reasonable and understandable reaction to the the system that we find ourselves in right now. Um, you know, as as a new parent, like yeah, I am concerned about how do I get my children a decent life. Um, and I can see the reasons why parents would want to spend, you know, um, all this time sort of engaging in highly interactive educational time with their children, you know, 
no free time for the child whatsoever. They just have to be constantly thinking about, well, how do I get better at maths? How do I get better at uh, you know programming and things like that? Um, so yeah, it's 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 a complex story, but the general thrust is that these standards de- do tend to increase over time, and that's what we try to um, to show in the book is how they've developed. Wow. Thank you for taking us through that. And I think it is important to acknowledge that it's not a sort of, oh, here's an easy answer, right? There is complexity and nuance here. And another area that you both uh, show the complexity and nuance, which I really appreciated in the book, is often when thinking about uh, sort of relaxing time or uh, free time, it's thought about purely in terms of quantity, like number of minutes, for example, between a mother and a father in a household. And obviously that's part of the story. But in the book, you also look at the quality of that time, the character of that time, and help us have a more nuanced understanding of this sort of temporal inequality in free time. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your findings there. Yeah. So we look at the sort of gendered imbalance of... uh, free time within the family. And I should specify in advance that um, a lot of the research, the existing research, uh, is focused on sort of traditional heterosexual families. And so a lot of our um, analysis ends up getting based on that type of family. And things are slightly different when you look more at LGBT um, families. Um, So I just want to qualify that. But looking at uh, uh, heterosexual families, we find uh, women have less free time in every country in the world. Um, uh, it's just it's just a, a sheer fact of the matter. Um, there's massive differences between countries, but in no country does the average woman have more free time than the average man. Um, so on that quantity level, there's that that basic inequality. But the more interesting one, which as you say, we try and pull out in the book, is this quality aspect. You know, not all free time is equal. Um, the free time that women have is typically with, you know, a child in the background, for instance. Um, it's involved with multitasking. It's um, it's sort of free time, which is uh, for shorter periods. So it's more interrupted uh, than what men receive. Um, and yeah, it's just all these, all these different aspects of, of the quality of free time for women are, you know, on average worse than they are for men. Men tend to get longer periods of free time. They tend to, you know, have less interruptions. They tend to um, have free time that is, they can devote to what they want to do rather than, you know, keeping half an eye on a child in the corner sort of thing. Um, you know, the the character of free time uh, is, is vastly different. Uh, and I think this really is uh, something which I think is underappreciated when people talk about free time and the gendered inequalities of it. Mm. Very much so. No, thank you for adding that in. Speaking of the fact that research is so dominated on the heteronormative, heterosexual family, um, the book also grapples with the fact that the nuclear family has really become hegemonic on many different levels in many different ways. And of course, that was historically not always the case. So how did how and why did the nuclear family become such the dominant model? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because um, it's very much taken as a traditional sort of family structure. And as soon as something gets, you know, assigned this category of being traditional, it's 
it's assumed to have existed for hundreds of years. Um, but actually, it's not the case. You know, the nuclear family is um, there. There have been instances of nuclear family for hundreds of years, but in this sort of dominant role, it's a relatively recent thing. Um, I mean, the story goes back to really the emergence of capitalism. Um, you start to see that uh, work that had been done by both sexes and was done both inside the house and outside the house, but was sort of done on um, uh, the rhythms of the family itself, uh, rather than being dictated by somebody outside of it. Um, the exception of agriculture, you know, dictated by natural rhythms. Um, but this work, once capitalism came along, you started to have, well, waged work. And the waged workplace was, the rhythms of it were determined by capitalists, you know, by the bosses. And that became at odds with the rhythms of the household. And so there was, you know, when it first emerged, there was a real challenge of trying to bring these two things together, you know, men and women going out to the workplace, coming home exhausted, and then trying to do the work required for, for the home. And eventually the solution that was sort of worked out was that, well, it's going to be men who go out to the waste workforce, it'll be women who stay home. And each of them have their different rhythms of life as a result. And so you start to see the splitting of um, the, the gender division of labor emerging at that point. And then you start to see the breakdown of more traditional communities, traditional networks, uh, and more and more care sort of being focused on the nuclear family, you know, mom, dad, two kids, two and a half kids, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that sort of model becoming increasingly um, what has cultural status in the first place. So it's seen as a marker of respectability to have that sort of family. Um, and then eventually it starts to gain a lot of legislative power. Uh, so governments, particularly from about the 1930s onwards, like the New Deal and stuff like that, start to integrate um, both sort of uh, uh, positive compulsions and sort of coercive elements um, to keep people in particular family structures, nuclear family. Um, and so like, you know, if you, um, if you get married, you can get tax breaks, for instance, that sort of thing. And um, if you uh, have a divorce, then there might be some sort of, you know, um, issue about getting your husband's or your wife's pension or something like that. Um, all of these sorts of policies that are getting enacted, which start to make um, the family, you know, the most beneficial, the nuclear family, the most beneficial way to live uh, and to reproduce yourself and any children that you might have. Um, so, yeah. And then in the 19, after World War II, the 1940s, 1950s, this really gets consolidated, particularly as a reaction against uh, the period of World War II, where, you know, you had women moving into the workforce, men going out to war. But I think also really interestingly, in the US and the UK, countries which are not known for providing things like public childcare, but because all these women were moving into the workforce, these countries did suddenly provide a lot of reproductive labor collectively. Um, and what you had happen after the war was a real reaction against that. Um, not from the women. The women, you know, quite enjoyed it, but men coming to want to reassert their their dominant positions. Um, and pushing women back into the home, 
closing down all you know these childcare facilities, defunding them, and things like that. So after the war, you get I think the real consolidation of the nuclear family. Now, two sort of qualifications of that is that well, it's if you're not white and middle class, the nuclear family has never really been the actual way in which you live. Um, there's many many other ways in which many other forms of kinship um, that people have lived in. But the cultural ideal and the policy ideal have been oriented towards this, this particular approach. The other thing is that the nuclear family from the 1950s onwards has been slowly in decline. Uh, and I think actually, I forget the exact figures offhand, but um, the nuclear family, uh, out of all sort of family formations um, uh, in the Western world, the nuclear family is either just a majority or below majority now. So it's not um, quantitatively, it's not this hegemonic form anymore. The problem is that while states are still oriented towards providing for the nuclear family as like the only way to um, provide care. Uh, so one example is like um, if you have to, for instance, take care of an elderly parent, um, you can, in many countries, get a carer's allowance to, to help you financially do that. You can't do it, however, though, if you want to take care of an elderly friend or an elderly neighbor. So it's only if it's that familiar relation um, that allows you to get these the, the, the financial, um, the carer's allowance. So that's you know, one way in which um, these, these systems are still very much oriented to the nuclear family, despite the reality being that that's not the way most people live anymore. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. I'd love to move to a different section of the book that thinks about a different aspect of this, but in many ways, there are some very consistent themes with what you've just been discussing, especially this idea of kind of a hegemonic dominant mental model, even if it's not necessarily kind of what everyone actually does in practice. Thinking about how the physical space influences um, this work at home, can you talk us through domestic realism and how it influences the spaces that we actually have and live in? Yeah. So domestic realism is, um, Helen came up with the term, uh, and it plays off of Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism. Um, and capitalist realism is the idea that, um, that we simply can't imagine alternatives to capitalism. Uh, and that therefore it becomes the, the sort of default de facto um, position. Domestic realism takes that same sort of idea and applies it to the household. And, you know, particularly in America, but even in other countries, there's um, this dominance of the single family, often suburban home as, you know, the ideal that you're supposed to strive for throughout your life. Um, and anything sort of, you know, uh, flat sharing or, um, owning, you know, duplex or something like that. All of that is sort of like second tier compared to this detached single family home. Um, and particularly that single family aspect um, that, you know, that we can't live collectively, that we shouldn't um, live in more collective ways. Um, so, yeah, we try and trace out how that's happened. Um, you know, one of the interesting things being that if you look from, say, the 1900s to basically the 1950s, there's actually a lot of experimentation with how the spaces that we live in. And this is partly because what you have in that period is mass migration to the cities as, you know, countries are industrializing 
or you have massive destruction from the world wars, which is suddenly allowing for, you know, the old housing stock has been destroyed. What do we do with the new spaces? You know, how can we do them, build them in ways which are um, reflective of the political ideals uh, of the time? And so you get all sorts of experiments, you know, a variety of different Soviet communes and in, in, in the revolution there. Um, you get all sorts of experiments with social housing. We in the book will go to Red Vienna as a very famous and I think a terrific example. Um, and then, yeah, and then from the 1950s onwards, those experiments sort of disappear, at least in any sort of mainstream way. Uh, and what takes their place is the ideal of this single family detached home. Um, and we try and trace out a story, particularly in America, um, of how developers' interests were based around this model, um, but also how it, how it took on political overtones. So one of my favorite my favorite quotes um, from the book comes from a, a very big developer in the 1950s, and he says, no man who owns his own home can be a communist. He has too much to do, uh, which very nicely ties together all of the things that we're talking about in the book. Um, but yeah, it was seen, you know, home ownership was uh, seen as a sort of bulwark against communism. Um, you know, if you're owning your home, then you're, uh, you're, you're sort of independent. You have uh, to take care of your home yourself. You have to think about the financial markets because you have to think about mortgages and things like that. Um, and yeah, the sort of hard work that goes into, you know, keeping up a home. So all of this was seen as like a way to keep communism out of America. And then it in fact gets spread around the rest of the world, um, sometimes quite actively uh, by US foreign policy. Um, so yeah, you start getting this idea of the uh, of home ownership and the single family home as uh, the dominant idea around many, many parts of the world. Uh, and that really constrains today the sorts of possibilities that we can imagine. Um, and also, you know, the existing housing stock that we have, even if we wanted to dramatically change things nowadays, it is virtually impossible because we have this housing stock, which is built for a particular family model. Uh, and to try and alter it nowadays would be incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive. So yeah, the this domestic realism points to like, well, it's not just an idea um, it's also this material reality that we have to think about, this, this, um, the built infrastructure that we're involved in. And, and this very much goes back to the idea of kind of how the, hedge, the nuclear family became so hegemonic in some senses. It's because literally that's what the built environment is designed for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So is there anything that could be changed about the built environment to reduce the amount of work or are we stuck with this entirely? No, not entirely. So we we try and show some ways in which it could be changed. Um, one of the, I think, simplest examples comes from the from Red Vienna, um, which is, even to this day, I think is a, a sort of a remarkable example of um, really uh, just intense thinking about how we might organize our lived experiences in, in better ways. Um, so yeah, you know, real efforts at collectivizing uh, work. Um, so for instance, you know, providing nurseries nearby, providing um, um, spaces for people to do laundry and shared spaces. Uh, so you, know, you don't have to worry about individual washer and dryer, but instead you can use these, you know, big industrial washers and dryers. Um, 
you know, various ways of collectivizing cooking. But then also, you know, beyond just the basic needs of life, there's also sort of the the more luxurious aspects. So things like um, lots of green space and parks and playgrounds. Uh, and then also one of my favorite examples is rooftop pools, uh, which I learned just a few weeks ago, actually. So some of these collective um, social housing in, in Austria or in Vienna um, has uh, rooftop pools. And the reason it came about, apparently, was because um, they had to put on the roofs of these places uh, water towers for fire safety reasons. So, you know, as a way to quickly get fire or get water down to um, any fire that might occur within the within the building. And if you go to a place like New York, you see this everywhere. You see water towers on all sorts of buildings everywhere. And apparently in Vienna, um, some people just simply asked, well, does this water that we eat on top of our building, does it have to be in a water tower or could it be in a pool? And they sort of thought about it, like, well, actually, it could be in a pool. And so they put pools on top, um, both as this luxurious aspect that can be publicly accessible, but also um, as a fire safety mechanism. So, yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, all of that shows that a different world is very, very possible. Um, and the sort of, you know, the, the stereotype of suburban America, where, you know, everybody drives to their individual home and you barely see your neighbor sort of thing. Um, that doesn't have to be the way that we live, that there are some real live alternatives that we can imagine right now. So you've taken us through a number of aspects that explain how we got here, some kind of particular ways or examples of alternatives. And towards the end of the book, you both talk about kind of zooming out a little bit, kind of more general principles. Uh, I mean, I love the swimming pool example, but thinking about that and also kind of more broadly what sorts of principles can we keep in mind when we think about how to move forward beyond the level of okay, what can we do with this water tank or what can we do with this laundry machine? Yeah. So in the in the final chapter, we try and set out, you know, how do we fix some of the problems that we've discussed in the book? And the challenge that we found in writing that chapter is that we could write a utopia where everything's perfect and everything's solved. And at that point, it's just like, well, it might as well be a sci-fi story. Um, it's, you know, it, it might be nice for illuminating imagination, but like it doesn't give us any grip on what to do with in, in the world today. The other thing we could do is we could give some sort of short-term policy-oriented ideas of what to do. And given the scale of the issues that we we talk about and the sort of um, the, the types of changes that we want to see, those sort of short-term ideas were, you know, just woefully inadequate for what we wanted to do. And so we tried to bring these two things together, you know, but what can we do immediately and where do we want to go in the long term? And we end up coming up with three, uh, three sort of principles for guiding action, for thinking about, you know, will this action today, uh, will it help us get closer to the sort of utopia that we want? And then, you know, for thinking also about the utopian, like, does this utopian world, does it meet with these criteria to adequately respond to the sorts of problems that we're, that we talk about in the book? So these three principles we come up with are communal care, uh, public luxury, and temporal sovereignty. Uh, the first of these communal care is, I think, fairly straightforward. Uh, it's the idea that 
the nuclear family in particular, but the family in, in general, is a really poor basis providing for providing all the sorts of care that we need in society. You know, there's so many demands that are put on families for looking after their children, for each other, for parents. Um, it just it doesn't it doesn't work. It ends up uh, requiring and demanding far far too much of of families. And there are better ways to do it, both for the people who are in need of care, but also in terms of like, well, we can do this more efficiently. Um, so we can get better care and we can save time uh, at, the same, at the same time. So communal care is really pointing to that. And I'll give you a simple example, which is 24-7 universal child care, uh, which was a demand of the feminists back in the 1970s and then sort of got moved to the background. Um, but it's a simple demand, which really would alleviate so much stress and uh, anxiety uh, from parents having to look after their children all the time. Um, and, you know, I've, I've got three children. I love my children. absolutely love them. I still need a break from them. Um, and, you know, if you get breaks from your children, you can, in fact, you can get rejuvenated and, and, and enjoy them that much more uh, when you see them after nursery and things like that. So I think, you know, universal childcare 24-7 to match the um, uh, the sort of disjointed working schedules that people have nowadays. Because um, one problem with a lot of nurseries at the moment is they only go from like, uh, well, our nursery goes from eight till six, uh, which is pretty good. But, you know, some do less. Um, and even eight to six is pretty difficult for some parents to make it there in time to pick up their kids at the end of the day after work. So if you have 24-7 universal childcare, then it, it resolves these problems. The second principle has to do with um, public luxury, and it tries to emphasize that, um, yes, we want to um, have more collective uh, institutions for caring, but also we need the infrastructure for it as well. So uh, an example here is, um, well, swearing pools is one example. Um, but also things like uh, long-term care centers, which have been proposed by uh, the think tank autonomy. And these long-term care centers are sort of community-based centers where um, carers can come and you know people are looking after, for instance, their, their partner. Um, they can come to these places and have a respite. Uh, they can rest up. There's, you know, there would be saunas there. There would be uh, exercise places. There would be you know, centers to, uh, or spaces to, you know, socialize with other people, uh, all of this sort of stuff provided to try and again, alleviate the burdens that are already placed on carers. Um, so yeah, we have to build up this infrastructure and we have to do so in ways which are not just a sort of bare bones backstop, um, like so much public infrastructure is nowadays, but instead is actually, you know, high quality, high spec and really thinking about how could we make people's lives enjoyable rather than bearable? Uh, and then the third um, principle we come up with is temporal sovereignty. And this one really stems from um, thinking about standards because the issue with standards and social expectations around cleanliness or parenting is that it's very difficult um, to step out of those individually. If you want to step out of you know the standards around cleanliness, then you know people will suddenly not want to hang out with you. You won't get jobs. Um, you know all these sorts of things will negatively impact your life if you don't meet those particular standards. Uh, similarly, with um, intensive parenting, 
you know, if you don't buy into intensive parenting, are you disadvantaging your children by not having them constantly learn in order to get the best education and to get the best jobs? So you can't just individually um, accept yourself from these uh, uh, from these uh, social expectations. So temporal sovereignty responds to that and says, well, we need to have collective institutions uh, that are determining or helping us to determine how do we spend our time and how do we want to do so in meaningful ways that reflect um, you know, in individual desires, but then also sort of collective demands uh, without letting these social norms sort of overtake our lives and become uncontestable in any meaningful way. Uh, so yeah, temporal sovereignty is all about building up these institutions which allow people to collectively determine how they want to live their lives. Thank you for taking us through those principles. I think there's a lot for people to get their teeth into there and think about going forward. So I only have really one final question um, that's probably on a slightly less macro scale than how we can fix everything in the future. This book is obviously out. People can go read it. Is there anything either of you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact subject that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so Helen's working on um, a book about post-work politics with Will Strong, uh, and that should be out hopefully next year. Um, it's going to be a book which is basically um, intended as a sort of introductory text um, to the idea of post-work politics. Um, so I think it'll be really terrific because I think there is there is no book like that at the moment. Um, and it'll sort of set the terms of the debate quite nicely. Uh, and then what I'm working on is um, something completely different. It's the political economy of artificial intelligence. Uh, so I'm sort of interested in how big tech is um, uh, trying to maintain their power as artificial intelligence sort of transforms their industry. Uh, and thinking about how the nature of power changes and how um, the sort of centers of power might emerge as things like generative AI take off. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to chart my way through uh, those sorts of developments. Fascinating. Well, while you both work on those projects, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, After Work, A History of the Home and the Fight for Free Time, published by Verso. Nick, thank you so much for sharing your and Helen's work with us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.